This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about working with kids. Now stop and identify the emotion that immediately comes up for you. It may be excitement, it may be severe anxiety. We're going to address both of those feelings with our wonderful guest today, who is Jordan Turner. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Ron. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And Jordan, tell us who you are. I am an educational and developmental registrar and psychologist, obviously, and um, I work with kids, primarily neurodivergent kids. Yeah. So Jordan was on an earlier episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, which was talking about her journey to registration and particularly her journey to registration while she was pregnant and fielding all those delicious questions from clients about that. It was really informative. Thanks, Jordan, for coming on again. Yeah, I'm so glad to be back. Thank you for having me. No worries. So when you first started working with kids, do you remember the feelings that you had about them? I think I was really excited to work with kids, um, but I was also extremely nervous about um, how to fill the time and like how to engage with them because I didn't really know when you think about therapy, you kind of think about talk therapy and sitting on a couch and talking to people, whereas with kids, not that many of them want to sit on a couch and talk about their feelings and especially not the kids that I've worked with. They are very not okay with talking about their feelings. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So when your main jam as a psychologist is talking about feelings and often I'll say that to clients, I'll be like, yeah, I'm interested in thoughts and feelings mainly. And yeah, that's, that's out the window. I can imagine that would be very nerve wracking. Oh yeah. I've definitely had, um, sessions very early on where it's really stalled and the kid is like looking at me like what am I doing here and what are you asking me and I don't know and just shrugging and it's just super awkward for everyone <laughs> yeah 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 it's like I am using silence I guess yeah <laughs> yeah let's uh you fill the gap please yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah no it's interesting to hear that you felt excited what's that part of you what got you excited about working with kids I think um, before I started working with kids, I did a lot of volunteer work visiting um, community mental health places like um, like psych wards and things like that. And often I worked with the older population and some of the uh, adult population. But what really got me excited was talking to the kids. I kind of felt like going into psychology, I was really interested in working with kids because when I was a kid, I saw a psychologist and I just thought they were the best person ever. And I really wanted to help somebody um, who was in my shoes when they were younger. So I guess that's what caused it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's incredible. I'm so glad that the psychologist experience was good for you because sometimes you hear from people that they're like, nope, had a terrible time. So it sounds like you want to be the psychologist that you had when you were younger as well for these young people. Yeah. And I think the and it's not like the I mean, he was an awesome psychologist, but none of what he said was particularly revolutionary. He was just a CBT guy, but just being heard and understood and made to feel like I wasn't crazy for thinking the things I, I was thinking um, was just so validating. And I just loved that feeling. And I really wanted to like share that feeling with kids in in my role. And that's where I ended up going, you know? 
Yeah. And I think that's really special. Like one of the ways that psychology can really contribute to kids' lives because they might not have a space where they can feel heard, validated, understood, and someone who's really interested in their lives, right? Yeah, definitely. Like I remember when I was a kid, I was constantly not being heard or or taken seriously or given autonomy or anything like that. And so that's, that's a real thing I factor into my therapy now where I just kind of listen to the kid, make them feel like they're in control of this situation. Cause they don't, they don't have a lot of control in their lives. You know, they're often um, at the whim of adults, teachers, parents, and whatever they want, you know, like you just have to follow the rules. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Do this, do that, eat this, donate that. Exactly. And that's why some kids come to therapy because they're not following the rules and they need to be. So there's a lot of interesting things when I think about kids. That makes me feel excited when I hear about working with kids, but I know my actual feeling about working with kids is quite anxiety inducing and nervousness. I remember when I had my first ever child client and I think I spent a few days preparing for the session and I over-prepared and I think I had like six activities that I was like, okay, I got to do everything with them. That didn't happen. It was more just getting to know you, like getting to know the kid in front of you. But I always remember having a lot of nervousness because I just felt like it was a completely different style to the adults mm. that I'd seen. Like you said, it was, I was mostly doing talk therapy and then everything with kids from what I was doing was like centered around play. Yeah, totally. I think that's, that's the key to working with kids is you should never just go into the session and expect them to talk, like always have a game or some sort of activity between the two of you. So like it can be the classics, you know, Jenga, Uno, I think every psychologist who works with has that, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, connect four, but even like Play-Doh, if you know that they like to get physical with Play-Doh or, you know, Lego pieces of paper and coloring. And I always have a whiteboard. I feel like you can't be a psychologist without a whiteboard at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You just need one. Um, I made that joke to a kid and it went over their head. They're like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you try and be cool with kids. And that's like, they'll tell you pretty quickly whether you're cool or not. Oh uh, yeah. The other day I, I had a kid who was just like, really? Is that what you're going to say? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> just laughing at myself, like, cause I'm so um, not hip. And I, I own that not hipness with the kids, you know, like I get it. Like a I'm older and probably not on the same level as you, cool guy. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the key things with working with kids as well, right? That authenticity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that I, I mentioned in the last podcast, but I was very, you know, that's my thing is that I'm very transparent and casual with the kids. I think that it's it's surprising because um, I think a lot of therapists approach with like a kind of a formalness to them. And I think... To have me come in and start bantering with them about Reddit or, you know, Pokemon or, you know, whatever meme is is trending these days or they kind of are taken off guard and kind of like, oh, this person is not acting like an adult. They sound like a peer. And it's just a little weird for them and sometimes um, nice in the end. Yeah, I guess they're not expecting to be understood or gotten. Yeah, I think it's more about finding mutual interests if you can or just like an interest that you can talk to them about and and getting them to feel like how do you get to know anyone you just you ask them oh what do you like to do and that sort of thing so in my initial sessions we'll what we normally do is we'll play a game there's no 
objective other than to build rapport. So I'm only playing a game with them. Maybe I'll ask them a question about what they like, what they're good at, and what they want help with. And that's those are like the standard three questions I ask. And I usually use a whiteboard and do like a matrix. And then we talk about that. Yeah. And then from there, I kind of go through it and I say, oh, you like this? Let's talk about that. Um, oh, you want to get better at this? Well, I can't help you with math homework, but I can help you with making new friends, you know? Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. So really explain to them what you can and, and can't help with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and usually like that's my stock standard. Before that, it's always really good to meet the parent, mm. like have a parent session. So you can kind of get a no and an in. So you can kind of know, oh, this kid really likes um, Star Wars. So I'm going to make sure that I know a bit about Star Wars and ask them about Star Wars. I was going to say that like getting the lowdown from the parents is a really good in and then you can casually work it in. Just be like, I was watching Star Wars the other day. And it's like, yeah, wow, you like Star Wars? Yeah, I do. You're like, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Count Dooku, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's, okay. So I feel like there's a lot of things to working with kids. Um, you sound quite experienced and I guess comfortable working with kids? I think so. Like, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I feel like I'm pretty good at the rapport building with kids. I yeah. think usually, like I had a client the other day who was just like, you know what? I like you. And I was like, thank you. I've been chosen. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really cool. And I think that's a really good skill because it's like, once you build the rapport, then one, that's really good therapeutically to do, but it means that you can be better able to do other therapeutic work as well. Like, um, kid is not going to do anything if he doesn't believe that you are there for them, that they can trust you, that you're going to be on their team to help them. Absolutely. That's like, I always fall back on rapport. It's like 60% of outcomes are yeah. predicted on, but rapport is something huge like that. And it's just like, aside from any other modality, as long as the kid likes me and I can tell them like it is, then that's going to be helpful. So what are the things that really help you build rapport when you're in the room with a kid? The thing that really helps, these are my little tips and tricks. So yeah. in the first session, I'll give you like the, the, the formula for what I do in my first session with Love a kid. It. I have the, the parent and the kid in the room. And then I say, this, this session is just about um, getting to know you. We're going to play a few games. And then if you feel comfortable, maybe we'll have your parents sit outside. So I, I give them the option of what games we can play. So there's uh, the room's full of toys so they can look around. If they feel a bit shy, I might say something like, okay, how about we play either Jenga or Uno? And then they'll pick one or the other. And if they don't, then I'll pick one. And then we, uh, I always end up on the floor. They're kind of sitting on the couch. So I guess being on their level is also kind of, oh, this lady is cool. She doesn't sit on her couch like a big authority figure. She's sitting on the floor, cross-legged, whatever. Um, I deal out the cards or stack the Jenga pieces. And I use sound effects. <laughs> so when I when I put a card down, I'll say something like, boink! And then, <laughs> yeah, like that, something silly like that, just to make it seem less serious. We're playing Uno, you know? Yeah, I guess like when I think of playing Uno, it, it can be a bit of a silent game, actually. It's like, okay, I'm switching. Okay, reverse. So I like the boink. Yeah, so I do a lot of sound effects. And then slyly might ask, oh, so did you go home early from school today to come here or oh tell me about your day what's exciting like I'll say something that I noticed about them or you know like something casual like like 
opening the field for conversation. And often what happens is we lose track of whose turn it is. And that's okay. Cause yeah. it's not about that. Yeah. It's just about having that, that mediating game in the middle so that we can have a conversation. Once um, we've played a round or two of whatever game, I'll ask the parent or, or I'll ask the kid if it's okay if mom or dad steps out and then they say, you know, yes, th- yes, that's fine. Or no, I want them to keep coming, you know, keep staying in here. Yeah. Usually they say, yes, that's fine. Sometimes they don't and that's okay. Um, it's super scary early on when yeah. the parents are in the room. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you're being evaluated. Yes. And, and on the flip side, the parent also feels evaluated because they're really, you know, they're, it's a bit like encountering a snake. This is a horrible analogy. And if parents are listening, I'm so sorry. But like, they're more afraid of you than you are of them, you know? Mm. No, totally. Yeah, because um, I feel like um, maybe the fear that parents have is that you're going to be assessing their child and then linking everything that is quite wrong with the child back to how wrong the parenting is. Yes, that's right. Um, and I think a lot of parents feel that, um, which is totally understandable. Yeah. If, but also, no, you're a person like everyone else. Anyway, so after the game um, and the parent steps out, we do like, I'll grab the whiteboard and then I'll do the three questions, which is, what do you like? What are you good at? And what do you want to get better at? And I'll say like, what are you bad at? Because I don't want to know. Yeah. You, even though it's kind of the same as what do you want to get better at? And then the, there's like a last quarter and then we might talk about whatever comes up at that point so if we want to talk about friends or or you know school or family or whatever that's what we do yep um what age are we talking about for this because I imagine it might look different for kids compared to teenagers or are we talking about teens as well yeah I reckon um up to maybe 12 is is good for this one maybe if they're um so I work across the lifespan so I, I think the youngest I work with is six and then the oldest is like I've had a like a 50 year old client but usually you know teens and stuff you don't really need to have the whiteboard but it's helpful for a prompt because if you're if they're ADHD which a lot of my kids are or if they have trouble like because they're nervous right they're, yeah they're sitting here with an authority figure which is a big thing telling them about their lives sometimes they need something to look at that's not directly like I'm asking you a question yeah totally it's it's more as a something that they can look to rather than me asking them directly and they can write down their answers if they're feeling shy yeah that's a really good idea um what about for kids who say are having who their parents or teachers have said that they are having behavioral problems so maybe they are uh, kicking or hitting or yelling at other people. How do you, do you address that in the first session? Okay, no. I'm shaking my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you get to that if you do? Because with your question, like, what do you want to get better at? I'm guessing the kid might know that I'm being brought here because I've been hitting people at school. I, I guess, yeah, how do you how do you get to that? Yeah, so I think those kids, and I work a lot with those like kids who are in for big behaviors and massive meltdowns and things like that. Um, they often say that they have problems with anger. Oh, so okay. they're not gonna say I'm I'm you know, I'm beating up other kids. That's yeah. what I want to get better at. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> but they say, oh, maybe I have if they say anything at all, I have a bit of like anger issues or something like that. Or I want to get better at managing my emotions because often they've been coached by their parents and teachers about managing. They're like, 
you know, you've got a control of your anger and sort of thing. For those kids, like honestly, like a lot of the kids I work with are emotion regulation kids. So often they are doing things like that. Yeah. Part of that is like normalizing the anger because there's so much shame involved in it. Nobody wants to hit another kid if there's an easier way around it because it gets them into trouble and it doesn't really get them what they want. It's more, it's often like a retaliation or they've lost control and they just don't know what to do. So they lash out because they've got that adrenaline pumping through their body and they just need to get rid of it. And the way to get rid of it is to attack the thing that is causing them that adrenaline pumping, right? It's fight or flight. So um, those sessions, like, like I said, in the first session, all we're doing is getting to know each other. So I'm not going to dive in deep to tell me about your anger issues. Did you punch that kid yesterday? Yeah. Um, Because they're going to be like, whoa, I barely know you. Step back, lady. So that's that's not something I addressed in the first session. I First, I want to get buy-in before I can talk to them about these things that are a lot of the time deeply shameful for them and embarrassing and and they regret it. Some kids take, like I've had kids who are aggressive, who I've seen for yonks like months and months and still don't tell talk about the the anger and the aggression that they're experiencing and in those cases I'll talk around it like this is what some people do when they're feeling really angry rather than saying you should do this I feel like I had pressure when I was working with kids and I think a lot of it was self-pressure but I was always thinking like how do I justify this to the parent? And if the parent is like, what are you doing with my kid? And I'm like, we played games today. I feel like you would just really need to have that confidence in what you're doing. And it's like, this is the right way to do this. I cannot be like, did you hit someone today? Uh, Tell me about that in this first session, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I experienced that similar pressure at at, um, first. I remember Um, in my very early days going to like group supervision and going, I don't know what to tell these parents. This kid hasn't progressed at all. We're barely talking about anything. And everyone laughed at me. Oh, wow. (laughs) They were like, of course he hasn't progressed because this isn't something that you could just fix. And I guess um, that comes to like one of the, the things that you have to address when you're working with parents is adjusting that I'm going to fix your kid mindset. It's more about understanding your kid and working with your kid to, to you know, work on whatever they they need to work on. You know, if they have anger issues, let's address what's making them angry. Let's minimize that. If they're, you know, depressed, why are they depressed? A lot of it comes down. I mean, I work almost entirely with neurodivergent kids or people who are questioning. Yeah. is It comes down to there's a lot going on for them. Um, and they're overstimulated or they have a lot on their plate. And I really love um, the the concept of spoon theory. I use yeah. that a lot in my sessions. I don't know if you've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I have, yeah. But can you tell the listeners what it is? Okay, yeah. So um, spoon theory is a, is a theory by, it was created by a lady in the disability community originally. Um, she was with her friend in the cafe and there were spoons there. And that's the only thing she had available. So this is how she explained it. Um, is basically a metaphor for like the amount of energy that you need to get through the day. I have a whole thing that I do to explain this to kids and parents. And that involves like getting spoons from the kitchen and then throwing them off a table and stuff like that. But I can't really do it on us. That sounds brilliant though. Yeah, I get, I'm visualizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the kids are always, uh, they get a kick out of the spoons hitting the floor or whatever. <laughs> um, 
They're like, what is this weird lady with like five yeah. spoons in her hand? <laughs> That's what, then they'll go tell people like, like their friends afterwards. Like I went to this session and this lady just chucked spoons on the floor. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I want to go to therapy. Anyway, yeah. continue. <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, the, the, the spoon is like a unit of, of things. And every time you, you use energy or you have mental load, um, especially with kids who are neurodivergent, you use a spoon. When you run out of spoons, you basically have no energy to do anything. And that's when meltdowns happen. So we talk about how to conserve spoons and how to replenish spoons. Often a kid might need some downtime. And in fact, I use this with adults as well. And I think about it in my own life now. Like I need to make sure I have enough spoons for this um, to get through the day. So we like spoon conservers are things like, you know, having a good night's sleep, making sure you eat well, pre if you're uh, a bit scattered in the morning pre packing your stuff that you need to do the day before so that you can just get up and go timers alarms anything that reduces mental load mm. um spoon replenishers nerding out about your favorite thing naps naps are always nice um having a delicious food that you, you know something to look forward to that sort of thing maybe even talking to a therapist sometimes that's a spoon loser cuz you're talking about tricky stuff yeah but i i almost always introduce spoon theory in my sessions with kids with emotion regulation stuff. And I like some of my kids, I'll go in and I'll be like, what's your spoons at today? And they'll be like, oh, it's really low today. I had a shit day at school. And then we know to take it easy and reduce demands in that session. And we just like do something chill, like talk about their fandom or do a bit of doodling or whatever. And maybe we'll chat about whatever comes up, but that's in practice, what we're using. I think we got sidetracked from the um, the parent thing. But. Yeah, I think we did. No, but that's okay. So, well, I really love spoon theory because it's so non-judgmental. It's like such like yeah. a, like everyone got spoons. Like if you're neurodivergent, some things cost more spoons than neurotypical folk, folk right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and often, like we also talk about the social model of disability where living in a world that is not designed for you as a minority, a neurodivergent person is fundamentally more exhausting than it would be for a neurotypical person. So you're already working harder than everyone else. Yeah. I, I talk about that. And I often have to tell parents that as well. Like your kid is acting out because they're working so much harder than all their peers to just sit there and be quiet when they really got to move or, you know, the noise is too loud. There's too much overstimulation, all this sort of thing. And they're just trying to hold it together. And that's mm. why all those girls who are masking have massive meltdowns at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. I really love it as well because quite often when a young person comes into therapy, it's the other people around them thinking that the young person is the problem. But with mm. speed theory, it really sounds like it shifts it towards like the young person isn't the problem. It's like the problem is the problem. Like there is exactly. the environment. So yeah. yeah, it really is just like so non-judgmental, non-blaming, really nice. I love it. Do people react yeah. well to spoon theory? I think so. On the whole, I think it's, it's nobody wants um, to feel like they're the bad guy. And I think a lot of kids who come to therapy and parents who send their kids to therapy feel like they're the bad guy yeah. when they're not really, they're just trying to, they're struggling. They've got stuff that they're trying to get through and we're there to help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess um, I like, I try to approach it from a neuroaffirming lens, I guess. Yeah. And so I just wanted to ask one more question about the kid part before we go into the parent part. Is that okay? Sure. 
Yeah, no problem. So one of the things that really stumped me when I was working with kids was how much self-disclosure to use. I remember going to supervision and being like, I told the kid my favorite animal and my color, favorite color, and my bad, oh my gosh. And they're like, no, you need to use those things more with kids to build rapport. And I was like, phew. Um, so I just wanted to ask you like about your perspective on self-disclosure when you work with kids. I, if I share an interest with a kid, I will fully nerd out with them about it. Yeah. Like, like, um, uh, I've had kids bring in Pokemon cards Yes, and then we'll be like, oh my God, this is so rare. Like, how cool is this? Like, how much does it go for on the internet? And we'll like Google it. And it's all rapport building. It's not like, um, we're just doing that for fun. Like I'm getting buy-in from the kid who, who is interested in Pokemon. Then they're like, oh, this person's cool. They like the same things I do. So Yeah. And in that way, I will disclose things that I, I like that they like. Um, sometimes the kids come up with things that are really like they have had similar problems to me when I was a kid. And I'll be like, I, I totally get it. Like, and kind of emphasize, empathize in that way. Often it's a tool for, I don't just do it willy nilly. I only do it as if it serves the function of building rapport and buy-in. So if I think that the kid is not, comfortable sharing because I'm like this big scary person I might be like you know what I get it like I so I don't um as a as a general thing I'm neurodivergent myself but I don't often like lead with that but if I I get the sense that maybe the kid is is not like skeptical about like how how much I really know about the situation then I will say look you know, I'm neurodivergent too. And I understand that it's really hard to fit in and, and it's, it's exhausting talking to others and stuff like that. So it depends on what we're divulging. And yeah, it's a fine line. Cause you also don't want to be like, oh yeah, you know, I, I used to self-harm when I was a kid. You don't want to say things like that, but you want to say things like, yeah, I really like, I keep going to Pokemon. It's not the only thing I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or um, uh, Reddit or or chess even, you know, all that sort of thing. Just talking about things that you like and that you share with those kids because then you can nerd out about that. And that, you know, that's how you make friends. And yeah. That's, so it's good like social modeling as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I find that um, I was listening um, to the Neurodivergent Women's podcast. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about like how the neurodivergent kid or a person versus a neurotypical person will they relate to people based on interests yes and so like we're if you share an interest it's like easier for them to kind of say oh you're a cool person you like the same things that I do yeah no totally and it really just struck me as as you were talking about this, but I was thinking about how I build trust with my adult clients and how I get buy-in with them is I guess they they feel nervous at the start, but I reckon they know more about psychology and therapy. They've already selected me for my qualifications or what their GP has told them about me. And they've pretty much said to the patient, like, Bruno will be able to help you. And so they already come with that certain amount of buy-in in trust. And then once I ask them questions about their world and I validate, I empathize, I help them make sense of their experiences, then I feel like we get moving. But with kids, 
they don't care that I have a master's. They couldn't Mm. care less that the GP thinks that I could help them. So I feel like this self-disclosure is like, yeah, this is how we get kids to like build that trust and buy in and get things moving. So it's like, it's different because it has to be. Yeah. There, I mean, the element of empathy is also there, but what it comes down to is, can they talk to me about the things they really care about? Because none of them care about talking about their feelings, really, unless they, they've come in and they're very insightful and thoughtful about their feelings. And not that many that I work with really want to be there because they're long-term clients. So they've been in therapy for a very long time and sometimes they're a bit burnt out on therapy. So yeah, no, that makes sense. And I guess yeah. like the other thing as well is that, okay, so you're an adult. And they're a kid and they might associate adults with like, when I tell adults about this stuff, I get in trouble. Um, So I've worked with kids on anger and I'll actually use self-disclosure and I'll be like, you know, yesterday, I'll tell you, I was really annoyed and I was like, you know, really like innocuous, like lame situation. I'll be like, I was really annoyed when I couldn't find my pen. And Mm. boy, that was a three out of five. I was, I noticed in my body, like this anger come up and then they'll be like, oh yes, like I can be angry too. So I'll really normalize it. Yeah. And, and it, I think sometimes it's helpful just explaining that anger serves a function. Yeah. Like it tells you that there's something not right here. Let's, let's talk about that. You know? What is the thing that's not right here? And you're more likely to be angry when you're tired or you have few spoons and all that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a beautiful in. Yeah. It sounds like you create a really safe environment with your clients. Well done. Thank you. I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope so too. <laughs> Come in and be like, oh, this girl's going to talk to me about Pokemon again. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love it if the kid was just like, yeah, I don't like Pokemon anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You've killed it for me. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and another thing about that is that I don't know if this is true for you, but I remember like, Clients might like singers or musicians. Like I remember one of my clients loved Billie Eilish and I'd never heard of them before. And so I got them to show me Billie Eilish's music and I was like, yeah, I can dig this. I'm into this. And they really enjoy showing you stuff. And same with like games. If I don't know a game, I'm like, teach me, show me how to do it. So I think I learned, um, gosh, I can't remember what it's called. Okay. So there is a first person shooter game, very popular. It's where the floss comes from. I know what it's called. Oh my gosh. Uh, oh my gosh. It's so annoying. Uh, I I know it because <laughs> I could see it in my mind. And then you have to like, just like, it's very colorful. You use the game yeah. gun and then you build things to get away yes. from people. Yes, you uh, do. Oh, so frustrating. I can't remember what oh it's called. Oh my gosh. And it was all the rage a few years ago um, with kids. Fortnite. 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 It was Fortnite. Exactly. Um, yes. So I've learned how to play Fortnite and I was like, <laughs> You know, I'm I'm okay with this. Like, I'm glad that you enjoy this. It wasn't really my jam. I'm not really into first-person shooters. Um, but they loved being able to tell me all their strats and everything that they're doing in this game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100% on that as well. Like, uh, we talk about the games in the room, but sometimes it, it's just about, I don't know, like kids are on YouTube these days, showing me their favorite YouTuber yeah. and explaining that. And it gives you context to the things they like. Like, one of my kids was into like this particular show that's on YouTube. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense about the way you talk because they talk like that on YouTube. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because at first I was like, oh my goodness, what is this language? And it was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, is there anything else you want to share with like tips and tricks about working with kids and building rapport before we go on to working with parents? 
controversial maybe, but yeah, don't shy away from technology. Like oh. sometimes I will like go on and do a bit of coding with a kid on a computer. Like if their parents are kind of okay with that, like some kids are, a lot of kids are super techie these days. They just want to talk about what, you know, whatever they're coding at the moment or whatever. There's a few websites you can go on where you can like both play a game while you're talking, but I wouldn't advise that without clear boundaries so you say okay we can play this game for maybe five minutes but we're gonna have to go and do something else and if they agree to that then yeah you set the boundary at first because otherwise it's not going to be successful trying to get them off the game absolutely no I really like that because it really models boundaries and sometimes parents find it difficult to follow through with boundaries that they set around screen time so you demonstrating that in therapy and showing how it can be effective can be really instructive as well yeah, definitely. Yeah. And definitely it's like, it's easier for me because I just met the kid and there's not an established pattern of, oh, if I scream or yell, then I can stay on yeah, longer. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I know that now because I have a, a kid at home. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a definitely an established pattern. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Jordan, is there any resource or book that you would recommend for people who are starting out working with kids? I have so many books that I love recommending. And if you're in like the neuro affirming community, you probably know about it already, but um, The Whole Brain Child by Dan Siegel. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. Love that. And he talks about a really nice metaphor for, um, he calls it flipping your lid. It's like the hand Yes, I use flipping your lid all the time. Yeah. Really great. Also good for adults because it's the same thing. Yeah. Same neuroanatomy. The other thing I like to recommend is The Explosive Child, oh. which is by Ross Green. That um, And he has like a great website that also has like a lot of um, like modeling how to have a conversation with a kid. And um, I guess the, the main takeaway of his stuff is that kids do good if they can. Like they never um, want to behave badly because it's not advantageous for them. They just are trying to, it's usually like something that they, they need to upskill in anyway. Yeah. So his website is really awesome and his book is really great. Um, and I recommend that to all my parents just to figure out how to, and even like it talks, it's like how I talk to kids in session as well. So have a read of that, listen to it on like audiobook on your drive, whatever. That's what I did first thing. And it was a really great, um, like scaffold for how I worked with kids. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I will link to both of those books in the show notes. I haven't read the Ross Green one. I haven't heard of it. So thank you for bringing it to mine and the listener's attention. I have to vouch for the whole brain child. I love it. And I've got the yeah. workbook as well. And I've given Ooh. that to parents to borrow. The workbook is really awesome. Oh, I'll have to get the workbook because yeah. I haven't... Um... I had it on audiobook and then I liked it so much that I actually bought it so I could show the parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's got like really good illustrations actually in the workbook as well, um, which appealed to me. So it's like, I say that I've read the workbook, but really I've looked at the pictures. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure that's what most people do, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm trying to read the book. I'll just look at the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a picture book for therapists as well. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to parents. And the reason I feel, uh, so parents pretty much listener is the reason why I don't work with kids. I find this very difficult. I like working with kids. I like them a lot. It's the parents that I find really difficult to manage. Um, and I'm sure that this is uh, a thing across the board right Jordan 1000% like almost everyone says I even like teachers I love kids but the parents are what make the job hard yeah 
And that's really sad. It is sad. It is sad because it's poor parents. I know, poor parents. I mean, just to give an empathy check, it's like, yeah, parents are also trying the best that they can do. And they're not, maybe like kids, they're not trying to be difficult. It's like they want therapy to go well for their kid. They want to have an easier life. So they're not trying, but it, it can be very difficult. So I just want to talk about two things with you, Jordan. So I want to talk about managing expectations with parents and Mm -hmm. working with separated families as well. So whether there's, how do we manage these dilemmas of like bickering between parents? Yeah. So let's start with the managing the expectations with parents. So parents, um, they might not understand that things are confidential um, unless the child is like under 12. Is that what you do for like? I think for me, it's really about what the kid feels comfortable sharing. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I, tell us how you manage, tell us how you work with that, with confidentiality. Yeah. yeah, so I think a lot of parents are like, I can't get through to my kid. Can you talk to them and just let them know the stuff? And usually the parents mean well, they have a, a good like good perspective on what the kid's going through, but the kid, especially if they're like tweenies or, or early teens or even mid-teens are just like, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But if... <laughs> No kid respects their parent at that age. And and I'm I really validate that with parents. Like they're just like that's them asserting independence and learning how to be their own person. They turn to their peers more now um, for guidance. And sometimes it's nice to have that third person to reiterate, actually, mom and dad are right. You don't say that. You you feedback um, you know, what the parent said and they go, Oh, you know, the therapist said that. And the parent's like, that's what I've been saying this whole yeah. time. So frustrating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I got sidetracked. What was the question? The question was about confidentiality. So sometimes parents want access to, I mean, it varies in detail, but sometimes they want more access than their child is comfortable sharing or that they actually need to know. Yeah. So um, what I do with parents is I'll explain that if I, if your kid thinks that I'm going to tell you everything that they've told me, they're not going to tell me things. So you want me to be able to share with you this stuff that's important things like risky behavior and things like that. But you, you have to trust that whatever they're talking about, you have to give them the space to, to be able to confide in me about things that maybe they don't feel comfortable talking to you about. Um, Because otherwise, if, if they think I'm telling you everything, they're not going to tell me this stuff. And ultimately about what therapy is about is talking about these things that are hard to talk about with your parents. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so setting up that expectation that like, Sometimes the parents won't know. And I'll talk very generally about, you know, how we worked on anger management or we talked about this with the kid in, sp- in specific situations. I'll, in fact, if I have a parent session coming up, I'll go to the kid and I'll say, what do you feel comfortable with me telling your parents? What do you want me to keep a- your parents from knowing? So if they have been bitching about their parent or whatever, they might say, don't tell my parent that I think that they're the worst. And I won't because <laughs> like, why is that important to the parent, you know? But if the parent, you know, if I have to break confidentiality with a kid, such as in situations of self-harm or or risky behavior, then I give the kid autonomy. I say, look, I have to do this as a matter of, um, you know, that's the law. I have to tell your parents this stuff. How are we going to do it? How would you like it to happen? Do you want to be in the room? Do you want to be the one to tell them and I'll be here? How would you like this to go? And I think that once I've made that, uh, that point that, um, confidentiality is important to build rapport the parents are usually on board with it Mm, so they understand that you're not trying to gatekeep it's like there is a specific purpose for why we're doing what we're doing yeah yeah I think that and I haven't in a while had a parent say 
I want you to document every single thing that the kid has said and tell me everything. And usually I'll be like, look, your your child doesn't feel comfortable about me talking about certain things if they ask specifically about it. And usually the parents respect that. Mm. What about if the parent is is the problem? So it's like child is doing something that the the family or the teacher views as problematic and the parent objectively is having a very unhelpful response. How do you manage that? Is this related to confidentiality or just in no, general? No, different topic. Sorry, I moved on without no, telling no, no, that's you. Okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess in the same way that you don't want to view the kid as the problem, you don't want to view the parent as the problem. Okay, sure. I was really gutting for viewing the parent as the problem. So, okay, sure. No, 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 that's that's fair. I think that um, it, it, it all comes down to everyone wants to do their best by that person. And, and sometimes you can be like super not on board with how the parent is managing things because mm-hmm. they, but I guess if you look at it as um, them, uh, you know, lacking resources or or the skill set or their toolbox for managing certain behaviors a lot of parents were are modeling things that they were taught as kids you know like by their parents and it's kind of like a multi-generational pattern of behavior oh you're so compassionate I was like I was like no parents are the problem you tell them you tell them what they're doing wrong (laughs) oh no like if you do that the parents probably disengage. You're so, so you right. Got to, I know, but it's so hard. You yeah. know, sometimes I get it. I get it. Um, but yeah, I think um, it's really important to understand, like from the parents' perspective, they are the client too, right? Like, so they, I think even the parents that are really hard on their kids and not very, like, are brutal, what they ultimately want. And especially with parents who are not on board was like if they're a neuro, neurodivergent kid and they just want them to like fit into a neurotypical mold is that they just want their kid to be liked and have an easy life and accepted and all that sort of thing. But and then I, I bring it back and, you know, that has to happen in the home as well. And this is how you can do it. You know, it it's not super effective to do it this way where you punish them every time something happens. Why don't we try this instead? So it's really having that understanding, non-judgmental conversation, reaffirming to them that they want the kid to be happy. Um, maybe how you're trying it, uh, there could be a different way that that could see things differently. How about we give it a go? Yeah, I think so. I think and I think trying to less authoritative and more like collaborative as well. Yeah. Let's give this a go and see how it works. And if it doesn't work, we can we can troubleshoot and go back to it because like a lot of my parents are in the know they're like in the field or they're adjacent to the field or the teachers or something like that and they already know about child development and they've already tried a lot and so to to act like I know more than them when I'm still in early career clinician there's more things that I can you know read about and learn and they are the experts on their kids like their kid is the expert on themselves but they know more about their kid than I do um their lens might be different because they're so close to um, whatever they're coming for, it takes the third party to kind of step back and see, look, this is what's happening. Cause everyone loses their cool. And when their kid's having a meltdown, that, that, um, hand model of the brain isn't just for kids. Like if, it, if your kid's having a meltdown, you're going to lose your shit too. And you're probably not going to be the most rational person. You're not going to be calm and, and self-regulated when your kid is punching you in the face or something, which is what happens sometimes, you know? So what do you do in that moment to keep yourself calm and collected? And I think a lot of parents find that happening because like if your kid's neurodivergent, 
pretty high chance that you are as well. (laughs) Exactly. I really love what you've just said. So it's really seeing the parent as a client as well and giving them all the same compassion, empathy, understanding that you give to your child client, seeing them as a team so that they can work together to help the child and allowing them to be the expert on their child as well. I've actually said that directly to parents. I think I've said it with every child client. I'd be like, you're the expert on your kid. I know about psychological um, therapies and interventions, and I'm good at seeing the relationship from a third party um, perspective. And so I can help with understanding dynamics, but yeah, I trust your perspective on your kid. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're right. Most of the time, yeah. like, uh, sometimes it's um, filtered by like them being super angry with their kid, which yeah. is understandable. Yeah. And it's a longstanding kind of conflict that they're having. And in that you gently challenge them like you would with a kid. You build rapport with the parent. You try and understand the parent's perspective and and wh- how how long they've been struggling. I'm finding I, I I have been working a lot with parents specifically, like on their own. I'm finding a lot of parents are super stretched thin like especially if their kid has higher um, needs that are going to like 30,000 appointments and all that sort of thing Um, school demands all of that and plus working a lot of parents are super stretched thin and burnt out and they just don't they actually don't look after themselves at all like they're they're like totally martyring themselves to help their kids and and I'm so like on it with all my parents you need support too like you need to be kind to yourself. You need to have somebody holding you and giving space to you because you're caregiving. You're looking after your kids so hard and it's hard. It's really brutal being a parent, you know? Nobody tells you this. You yeah. go in and you think it's like so delightful. And then and then it's like, oh my God, like this is relentless. There's no uh, like clocking out and going home. You know, <laughs> you're always with the kids. Yeah, twenty four seven. That's your that's your parent role, and it's hard. Yeah. Parent burnout is a real thing, and it's it's really yeah. hard. And I think yeah, a lot these days, like yeah, parents are doing it really tough. Yeah, for sure, and especially like in the media, you hear so much about like behavioral problems quotation marks rising after COVID, and it's all like collective trauma. And some kids and parents have had fallings out during lockdown because everyone's in close quarters and it's a pressure cooker. You know, they had to manage working from home while also teaching their kids or helping facilitate school. It's just a whole mess. And so in that way, it's, it's, um, if you look at it from that perspective, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I get it. I get that you're not doing your best right now, but that's because you're totally fried. And you're just trying to get by. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So really important to acknowledge that what's going on for the parent as well. The other flip side of that is sometimes you can be the target of like anger, which is, yeah, right. So like if you're, especially if the parent's feeling a bit vulnerable and and you're kind of saying to them, you know, probably not the best thing, um, then they can be quite angry at you about that sort of thing. Like, or, and not explicitly angry, but they might be like, who are you to tell me this, you know, this sort of thing. But that's fair enough because nobody likes to be poked in their sore spots. So I guess being compassionate and really empathizing and building rapport with the parents is just as critical as building rapport with the kid. Yeah, you're not going to get that buy-in if they feel like they're being backed into a corner and poked at and being like told that you are the wrong thing here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's like when you look at a kid and you tell them, oh, you're wrong for punching that kid. Well, you punch that kid because you're angry. Like, I get it. 
I mean, don't I don't endorse punching the kids. No, Punch a pillow instead, please, or play the drums or yeah. trampoline, whatever you got to do. But yeah, no, doesn't work out. Definitely. Okay. Last thing I want to ask about Jordan is how do you deal with um, separated parents who are bickering? Is this down to like, you need to have really good policies about how separated parents communicate with each other? Like, and do you feel like you're stuck in the middle as a clinician? It can get to that point. I think when there is um, parents that are divorced, um, you really want them to be on the same page about parenting. So often, I think in our practice, we have a policy where um, if I'm working with your child and both of you have shared custody, then both of you get the emails about what, what's happening. Both of you um, should be present at the parent session if you can be. Um, if not, then I'll communicate to both of you. Nobody should be left out. We're, we're only talking strictly about the child and not about um, you know the other parent. That sounds important. Yeah, because... Um, the reality is, is that once parents separate, they're going to have different parenting styles and it's going to be like a different thing to navigate. I've had to have supervision about how to navigate this before. Um, but yeah, I think it, what it comes down to is trying to keep it consistent and make it about the child, not the parents. And it's like, you can understand that there's things to navigate, but if they start bringing that into the room, you might suggest them seeking their own therapy to work that out. Yeah, that sounds really important. Gosh, you must be so good at communicating boundaries. You you'd think that, but maybe I'm not. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, I sound like I'm put together, but who knows what I'm like behind it. No, please, I'm I'm very good at it. No, just kidding. <laughs> practice makes perfect or or improvement, whatever we're going for. Practice makes progress. Exactly. That's that's the moral of the story. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. I think that's really good place to end on, Jordan. Is there anything else that you want listeners to take away from today? I think the the three takeaways are um, see your parents as clients and understand them. Find out what the kid likes and empathize and get in the know of about their interests. And never just talk to a kid. Always have something to play with while you're talking to the kid. And I guess my takeaways. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Jordan, if listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at the moment. Um, I'm also practicing at the Social Learning Studio in Brunswick, um, but our books are quite full. But if you're interested, that's where I'm at. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on and teaching us these valuable lessons about working with kids. And it's been a pleasure. Yes, I'm so happy to have been back. Thank you for having me. No worries. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. I could use some help getting the word out about this podcast. If you wouldn't mind, take a moment and give me a review on iTunes or Spotify or let someone know about the show. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.